Hello, wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and here we are at episode nine of Shut Up and Wrestle. Thank you for joining me once again. Um, We have a great guest here this week. It is something that I'm thrilled about because it is a fellow writer and historian uh, Bertrand Hebert, who I will talk about in a few minutes. But before I get to him, um, I also want to mention that I'm, I'm kind of excited and thankful that I've gotten so much positive feedback, actually, to the show from last week, episode eight, the episode with Deborah Jazway, who was the creative director from WWE. Uh, I wasn't sure how everyone was going to accept that, being uh, somebody who is really from the inside of the corporate end of the business and not really a famous person, but uh, really great, great feedback. Apparently, a lot of you really liked that point of view and her unique inside perspective on the industry. So I'm going to be trying to do more of those for sure um, on future shows, and I'll keep you posted as to how that goes. Um, Also want to talk about the book. I have to talk about the book. Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik, is now just about two weeks away from publication. And uh, really, I want to read you something, and I hope he doesn't mind this, that I got is an email I got from Michael Holmes, who who was my editor at ECW Press. They're the publishers for this book. And Michael apparently has gotten some physical copies of the book into the office, And he sent me this email. I'm going to read this right now. The title of the email is Your Beautiful Book. And the email goes, Hi, Brian. I finally have a copy of Blood and Fire in my hands, and I'm awestruck. It looks and feels even better than I imagined. I hope you love it as much as I do. I'm incredibly proud of this. It really is brilliant. And it may well prove to be the best work of fight sports biography ever done. What you've achieved is both brilliant and rare, and I'm honored to have played a small role. Congratulations, Michael. Now, that is high praise, and I don't know if my book is even worthy of that praise, but I am so honored and grateful to Mike, uh, my editor from ECW Press, for that level of feedback. And I told him that if readers have that kind of a response uh, to what he has had, then this book is really going to be something beyond even my dreams when I envisioned writing it. Uh, I also finished last week because I know I mentioned to you guys that I was going to be doing the audiobook recording for Blood and Fire, and I did complete it a few days ago. Going to be doing some finishing touches on it in April, and then it will probably be coming out sometime around the summer, that being the audiobook version. The print version, of course, April 12th, you can pre-order it now, if you so choose. 
Uh, moving right along, let's see. Well, we'll get to our guest in a minute here. Of course, as you're listening to this, it's WrestleMania week coming up. So if you're watching, I hope you enjoy the show. And of course, this being an old school wrestling podcast, we don't want to talk too much about current wrestling. Lots of folks out there who do that and do it very well. But I will be watching WrestleMania. And um, I hope you enjoy it. If you are, if you're not, then I hope you kick back and you watch some good classic old school wrestling and enjoy and enjoy that as well. Um, anyway, let's get to our guest. And I'm going to do a big introduction when I bring him on here and when I do the segment. But, you know, one of the things that I, I wanted this podcast to be about is conversations with wrestling historians and writers. I'm one myself, and I, I, I humble myself because there are a lot of people out there who, in my opinion, do this a lot better than I do. And I look up to them, and I really kind of use them as inspirations for my own work. And this person is one of those. So um, it's really a pleasure to be able to talk wrestling history with somebody who has also re researched it and written about it. And Bertrand Hebert, as a lot of you probably know, is a longtime collaborator of Pat LaProd, but he has also done a lot of significant work on his own. And we had a fascinating discussion. I hope you'll enjoy it. And I'm going to take you to it right now. Okay, so at this time, I would like to welcome somebody to Shut Up and Wrestle that I'm very glad to be able to get on the podcast uh, because this is part of something that I've really wanted to be part of this podcast from when I first started, which is to make sure to include and feature conversations with um, writers, historians about professional wrestling, people who kind of do what I do um, as part of the rotation of guests. So this is definitely someone who more than fits that description. Um, the author of several books, um, which you may have heard or heard of or read, including Mad Dog, Midgets and Screwjobs with Pat LaProd, which was the history of Montreal wrestling, accepted the Pat Patterson biography, which um, was I believe that was not with Pat, right? That was um, that that was by myself uh, without with the other with the real the other Pat. the other Pat. Right. Uh, the Maurice Vachon story, the biography of, of Maurice Mad Dog Vachon, which was with Pat LaProd. There's too many Pats around here. And of yeah. course, the eighth wonder of the world, the most recent one, the Andre the Giant biography uh, that he wrote with Pat LaProd, which I believe just came out in paperback edition as well. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm talking about Bertrand Eber, welcome. Thank you for the invite. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, very good pronunciation. <laughs> I tried. Well, like I like I was saying to you before we started, I think I kind of learned it from when you were on the 605 Super Podcast. So I wanted to make sure I get it right um, because, you know, I think that's important, especially from coming from somebody who is constantly being referred to as brain by everybody, you know, at <laughs> least in at least in writing anyway. So, yeah, <laughs> my whole life, birthday cards, everything. Dear brain. Happy birthday. I've had to live with that. So anyway, well, transform <laughs> into Bernard for some reason. Most people. Oh, right. Well, I think, I mean, I can't speak for an entire country or language, but I think it might be because the name Bernard in English is probably a lot more common than the name Bertrand. So, you know, it's it also in French. So, you know, I, I kind of learned that it's almost inevitable. It's going to happen somehow, <laughs> some 
call me Bernard. Happens almost all, once a week at my regular job. So it's... I I also get Brian Sullivan a lot. So <laughs> I get it, it goes from Jewish to Irish all of a sudden. I don't know how. Yeah. Brian Sullivan. What... So anyway, that's not what people are listening to this to to learn about the the philology of names. So instead, we will. <laughs> We will turn to the matter at hand. So one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you and get you on to is just um, the the amount of, of books that you guys have done and that you on your own also with the Patterson book um, is just really impressive to me, especially because um, there's like this theme really where, you know, you're focusing a lot in on one area of wrestling history, which happens to cover a lot of ground. Um, being the French Canadian side of things and, and, and even just French in the case of Andre the giant. And it's amazing to me just how much ground that covers, because for somebody that may not know a lot about it, you would think, well, I have, you know, I don't really have any connection to that as an American or as an English speaker, but then you go, Oh my God, mad dog Vachon, um, Pat Patterson, Andre the giant. Okay. Now I get it. So, I mean, is this, were you um, a fan growing up of, of all this stuff? I became a fan around 10 years old. Uh, I remember watching my television. The international wrestling territory was just starting back up. And I just became a huge, huge, huge fan. And uh, I remember going to the forum and seeing Andre and uh, seeing Pat Patterson teaming with Matt Dog Lefebvre against the Rougeau brothers, uh, which years later I now understand, even though they were not billed as the main event, why they were the main event, because nobody wanted to follow after Pat Patterson. Uh, and I have memories of how good and how much heat those matches generated. So, I mean, I was always fascinated by all of those guys. They were my heroes. Uh, and, and, you know, the fact that it was French territory for us, I mean, we had our local heroes, literally. And this goes back to Yvon Robert for the territory. It was always built that way. So uh, all those guys, you know, that I had the chance to interview or uh, talk to or even become friends in, in, in the past few years, it's just been amazing. And it's such a rich territory with, uh, at the same time, it was in, in its own bubble. It was never part of the NWA and it was always the French barrier. So it was not like the most odd tape to trade because people did not necessarily understood everything. And, you know, by the time there was really footage available in the 80s, WWF took over five years later. And, you know, the territory just became one one section of the WWF uh, big, bigger territory. So but. I always loved it. I had huge archives that I kept of newspaper articles and and things of that nature of my fandom in the 80s. Um, and with Pat Laprade, we, you know, that was originally his project. He lost his first partner uh, who, who bowed out of the project. Um, and we had mutual friends. We knew each other. And uh, it just was the perfect match. Uh, so I had all that because Pat is a little younger than me. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I have a little bit more knowledge and more uh, memories of that time period of the early 80s. Um, and I had the, all that those archives. So it was kind of easy instead. It's, it's, it's fun for the 70s. We had no other choice but to go to the library and all of that. But for the 80s, I pretty much had everything right there <laughs> mm. in, my, uh, in my bookcases. Uh, so, I mean, that really saved a lot of time and a lot of research because everything was already organized, ready to go. 
and uh, you know you discover so many fantastic things and and the more we talk about those guys I mean they were all getting up in age I mean Pat was the last one to speak with Mad Dog Vachon uh, he was the last one to speak with Edouard Carpentier um, so it's when those guys are gone they're gone and in the, the cases of those guys there's not a lot of stuff that was documented back in the days uh, I mean even for a lot of them it was you know no oh, throw away that picture throw away this throw away this put that right. in the garbage because you know for them it had no value and there was a stigma also in the business that if you kept too much you were a mark um so i mean how do you preserve that history so it was always the goal and you know we we, we kind of become expert of, on the field by by extension because you know when you meet the baron von Raschke at in las vegas you know he got his big part in montreal so it kind of uh, it snowballs and the more books we have out and the more people read those books the more they are impressed with the way we process the subject because originally when we were starting with maddox midgets and screw jobs there was a lot of uh, are you gonna laugh about wrestling that was the big thing because people knew that you know it was now more in the open and everybody knew but there was always that are you going to treat this seriously? Are you going to pay homage or make sure that it, it's presented in a fair way? And that's the feeling we got. And it got easier and easier to get interviews and to get people to work with us because they were very impressed with what we did. I mean, Pat Patterson read Mad Dogs, Midgets, and Screwjob, loved the way we presented this story in there. That led to him, you know, using you know pushing for me to get the part to play uh, his writer because he, he could not find a way to work with anyone because he felt like they knew nothing about him and they he had to explain everything and it drove him crazy he wanted to tell the story but didn't want to explain who everybody was in the story right. uh so you know so it just be you know it snowballed into the mad dog vachon book uh, when Mad Dog passed away, uh, it became a big story here in Montreal. So that that opened door for us with the publisher, and and we had the chance in all of that to do all version of the book except for accepted are all in both English and French. So the, either one version was first and the second and the second. It, it it's never exactly the same, but that's for me. It's it's amazing that we were able to do in both languages as well because and that the fact that the English version of Mad Dogs Magician Screwjob is actually what opened the door for us on the, with the French publisher because ECW Press is very good for wrestling in Toronto uh, and Canadian wrestling history and all of that and, and we were able even if we were both practically unknown except from some buying line here and there in the, on Slam Wrestling right. uh to oh, and once we got a real publisher to publish th this book, suddenly all the French publisher who didn't want to touch our original manuscript in French suddenly were interested, and so we were able to get uh, the the French version, which is called uh, "At la semaine prochaine si Dieu le veut," which was uh, Edouard Carpentier's signature phrase uh, back in the eighties. Uh, published in French in the same year, uh, six or seven months after uh, the English version. Uh, so we were really, really happy with that. And it's uh, turned out into an, an amazing ride as far as writing books. Uh, Pat even ended up uh, being now the French commentator for uh, WWE in, in Montreal. Uh, 
So when the finally wrestling came back to television in French, uh, which said had been off television for years. Uh, so it's, uh, it's been a, a fun ride and more importantly, uh, very important because, you know, it's there <laughs> for me. The fact that it's there. If someone in 20 years want, okay, what about professional wrestling in the province of Quebec in the Montreal wrestling territory? We did a work that we can stand by and that makes sense. And, that went beyond fictions and yes. tale, tall, t- tall tales. So, you know, because when we started, I mean, there was so many, <laughs> you know, there had, they had been some books, more stories than facts. Uh, so we kind of dig through all of that and interviewed the people who actually lived through it. And I think we were able at least to, to, to put together something that, people can actually look at as something serious uh, about the subject. And it's there. It's going to survive me, survive uh, beyond uh, any of us. And I think that's important uh, because those guys, I mean, any other field of uh, entertainment, if those guys that were stars all over the world, from Japan to Europe uh, to everywhere in the U.S., in different characters, whether they were a French, Canadian, Russian, or anyone, any other type of characters, I mean, we would celebrate their career. We would want to make sure that they're never forgotten. We wanted, we would want to learn more about how can you become a Russian from Montreal and, and become a big star in uh, Des Moines, Iowa, or something like that. You know, so I, I think that's that's important, and, and it's there now, and uh, we're we're really really proud, and uh, really proud of the fact that people in the business. I respect our work to a point where, you know, I remember that when we had the book out, uh, Rick Martel bought like, I don't know, 20 books or something because wow. he wanted to give those to a member of his family because he said, I'm, I'm never going to write a book about myself, but I think this book really represents what we did. So I was like, okay, that's, <laughs> for me, that was like flabberback, flabbergasted, you know, that Rick Martel would, would, uh, do anything like that and think that way about our work so it's that, been a right yeah i mean that that really is the most important part of it i find i mean because you know after just now finishing this book about the chic which is coming out very very soon i also took that approach when it came to let's say detroit wrestling which is something that i don't think is talked about or written enough about anymore and it's like um you know, it, it, it's a historical document. And like you say, in wrestling, in this business, that's not always something that's valued and um, sometimes quite the opposite. I will say it's definitely gotten a lot better in recent decades with all the wrestling books. The whole wrestling book craze has helped. But, you know, like you said, there's no I mean, they didn't give shoot interviews back then. So, I mean, for some of these guys, the stories are gone. Like, like I encountered that with the Sheik book where so many of the major players, you know, I, I can't sit down with Bobo Brazil. I can't sit down with Wild Bull Curry and people I'd love to talk to. You know, I can't sit down with the Sheik, obviously. So um, you try to preserve what you can. And, and especially because I also felt with Detroit and then looking at Montreal, um, another area that at least, you know, I can speak from an American perspective from an English speaking perspective, it's a territory and an area and a part of wrestling history that we don't hear enough about. I feel like even in Canada in general, 
it's like its own, like you said, its own bubble, its own world. It's, it's, it's in its own little universe sometimes, you know, when you look at it. I mean, I always, you know, it's, it's, for me, you can only compare Montreal in wrestling to how you would compare it to uh, Japan in wrestling or Mexico in wrestling. It, it's a cultural, diff- there's a cultural difference compared to anything else in North America. And, and, and the way things worked out is that, you know, with Bret Hart, it, it became, you know, wrestling in Canada is Calgary and it's the Hart family and the, they're the dynasty. But if you look at in a geographic way, I mean, that'd be like saying that wrestling in North Amer- in the, the United States is, uh, let's say, uh, Oregon or California only. Right. And that, that's the heartbeat of wrestling in, in the country. Uh, Canada is a big country. And, you know, you can really say that there was like Calgary, Toronto and Montreal and even the Maritime. So you have like four very distinct territories. And, you know, British Columbia had his own little thing, too. Uh, so it, it's, it's very different. So, but it, because of how things turned out with Brett, it, it became, you know, like the, the royal family of wrestling in Canada and, and, and so and so. But in the province of Quebec, I mean, no one would tell you that the heart are the, the, the royal family. Everybody would say it's the Rougeau family uh, right. to this day. So it, it's, uh, and to this day, I mean, Sami Zayn drew probably more people in the Mont- in, in Laval, in his hometown, for WWF house show recently than they were at Madison Square Garden for the big show. So it's, that's the bubble. That's the difference. When the Quebecers became tag team champions, suddenly Montreal was one of the few <laughs> that was actually drawing money. That's amazing. Uh, and it, and it, had nothing to do with anything else in the product except for the fact that suddenly we had stars that were from Montreal. Uh, and, and it's uh, it's it's a amazing. It, it brings up amazing stories. I mean, we have a whole section about that time period in, in the Mad Dogs, Mitchell, and Screwjobs. We call it like in the good old days of Yvon Robert because suddenly Jacques Rougeau and Pierre Calvillet were like the biggest star in Montreal. They were everywhere. It's at the same time as the NHL and Major League Baseball were hmm. on strike. You know, newspapers were like running around to find anything. And then suddenly you had the retirement of the last Rougeau and, you know, the big split with the partner. They were on television and the newspapers. They were doing a special uh, training session. Everything. Suddenly everything was wrestling. They had the match live on the radio. And so it, those stories, I mean, you, you cannot find anywhere else uh, where a, even something close to that would happen uh, today because even with WWF, they, they have a very uh, tunnel vision mind about the hometown and, you know, always playing to a global audience. But, you know, if you present the local star, whether it's Montreal or anyone else, I, I have belief that you can make that person a very huge star everywhere else when they see the reaction of the hometown uh but that that's for me uh but i don't think that's the the vision of uh, how they, they want to see their their product they're they're very uh more about about the the, the brand right. than the so it is what it is but we have those amazing stories in montreal and, and they keep on going i mean the fact that that the house show drew on on Sami Zayn's appearance uh, almost alone 
um, to me is uh, an indication that it's it's still a very special place as far as what will work in Montreal compared to anywhere else. Well, I think, like, for example, you're talking about the Rougeos. I think the people of Quebec were probably the only wrestling fans on the planet who were not shocked when Jacques Rougeau pinned Hulk Hogan, when WCW, <laughs> you know, I mean, like for the rest of us, it was like the Mountie, what uh, he pinned Hulk Hogan. And, you know, especially at the time, because I was a kid and I didn't know a lot about wrestling history and the importance of the Rougeau family. But I mean, and I know there were other reasons for that between Hogan and, and Jacques Rougeau, but I mean, just that he was on that level in that area where people um, would not be shocked at that happening. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, that was a big match. It's part of the the, the whole storyline of the split of the Quebecers until that match of what we call the good old days, just like the in the time of Yvon Robert. Uh, Jacques was an amazing salesman, and 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 him and Pierre Calvillet and uh, their partner at the time, Kuki Lazarus, did a tremendous job promoting that show to a point where I, I don't think, even to this day, because he wasn't physically present, that Bischoff understood how big of a show it was in, in the city, uh, how big of a thing it was on television locally. Uh, you know, they had Jacques, going at the airport, slapping Hogan, coming off the plane and, and you know, with live media on end and, and it was a huge deal uh, and, and because he was a Rougeau I mean, and I would, I would, you know when me a little bit of an in, insider that I was, it, it was kind of a surprise that, that Hulk would, would actually do that uh, <laughs> however, learning what you know everything that was going on and there was a power play with Bischoff and and the fact never underestimate the fact that Jacques Rougeau has a lot of respect from a lot of people because he stood up to Dynamite Kid at at a point in time where everybody was kind of scared of standing up to Dynamite Kid Uh, and and that would include Hulk Hogan Uh, so it's uh, it's a weird, weird story as far as I, I'm concerned, but it, it is part of our, our territory and, and what makes it so magical that we have those stars that, that mean so much uh, locally and, and that can also draw media attention that no other wrestler in his hometown could, could draw uh, in North America. Because for us, I mean, and we had the same phenomenon with uh, George St. Pierre, with the UFC, with Jacques Villeneuve in Formula One. It's when we have one of us that becomes a champion or becomes a, a big star in any field, it, it is something that is very uh, celebrated. So whether it's wrestling or anything else, uh, it's always a big news story. And that's, you know, we've been mentioning a few times, we've mentioned Yvonne Robert. And, and for people that don't know, you know, basically, I guess it would be fair to compare and call him kind of the Bruno San Martino of um, Quebec. I mean, would that be kind of a fair? That, that's a very fair assessment, and uh, which I like, by the way. And also, it's important to, to, to put people in perspective. At the time of Yvon Robert's most popular time period, he was almost as big as Maurice Richard in Montreal. He was a close number two 
actually the families were friends. He was they were both friends. Maurice Richard, one of the biggest players in the history of the NHL, uh, and, and a hero to the French Canadian people. And their family are still friends to this day. And at the you know, culturally, you know, we lost Robert too soon and he kind of fade away, which is very sad. And that's where our books come in uh, because, you know, he was so, so important as a French Canadian hero uh, at the time. Uh, and, you know, he was a businessman and th there's a whole thing about uh, that time period when Robert becomes a star and, you know, has success in businesses and all that, where, they, you know, they, it was always about French Canadian not being able to do that type of stuff, you know, being workers, you know, was you were to, you know, having success was, oh, you're working for a big English company or your your boss is an Englishman or, or you know, a, you work for a company that has a head office in Toronto or things of that nature to create someone from nothing that was French Canadian and that would create his own business, have his own employees and work in French and speak French. That was something huge. Richard was was part of that. I mean, there was that, that big riot in Montreal when he was suspended. Uh, so because he was more than just a hockey player. And Robert at that time period was more than just uh, a wrestler. He was uh, Ricky Dozan. He was El Santo. That's... Yeah, I mean... That's it's, it's very fortunate that he, he, he passed away so young uh, in the 70s that, you know, we're 50-some years later. And, and, you know, until we spoke about him again in 2013, he had his own biography, which was pretty good, but didn't get enough traction, as far as I'm concerned, of how big of a star Robert was. So hopefully, you know, at least now there's enough material out there uh, to remember him for what he was uh, in that very precise time period where he became such a big star and an inspiration for the French Canadian people. And, and part of that too is uh, again, for people that may not know, I mean, because Montreal was um, kind of a, a place onto its own when it came to wrestling and they, they had their own world champion uh, for the Montreal athletic commission in the same way that in other parts of the country, like the New York state athletic commission would have its own world heavyweight champion for a while or California would Montreal had its own world championship, which was, a, you know, held by Yvonne Robert many, many times, which is why I always, I always laugh when people try to compare the amount of world titles and, yeah, uh, granted, Ric Flair was the NWA World Heavyweight Champion. And he traveled the world, and and you know we have to say he was recognized in more places. But if you're just talking about how many world titles, if you if you include Montreal, I mean, Yvonne Robert might actually be the record holder, or at least close to it. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 funny when you you dig a little what you find out about different places and how titles were created and. Uh, who, who or what recognized them and, and what was the platform they were on, you know? So uh, I always feel it's funny today because, you know, uh, I've seen, you know, indie promotion running one building every month calling their champion the world champion, you know? So it's, uh, it's, a, very, uh, <laughs> it's a very funny subject as far as I'm concerned. But back then, the Montreal Athletic Commission did recognize one champion and it went through different promotion from the Yiddick Win Day up until the International Wrestling Days of Gino Brito. Uh, it was always the same 
technically recognized uh, championship. Uh, so uh, that that in itself was amazing to be able to go back and dig and fill out all the we have the list in, in the book. Uh, that that was a lot of fun because you know you hear so many stories along the way and, and some stuff got lost we actually discovered that for a short period of time martel was actually the champion which i had no idea because it happened just before i became a fan um so it's uh, it's a very different era and, and uh, we had that that very special uh, bond to our champion because he, you know like in japan or uh, mexico we had that always an outsider coming in. I mean, I remember for Bravo, for example, uh, he had work in uh, Mid-Atlantic and uh, he was he was friend with uh, Bill Eadie, superstar. D- Dino Bravo, you're talking about, Dino right? Bravo was the big champion in the 80s. So when they, they had super, you know, so at one point they had superstars com- coming in as the big challenger for Dino. The, he, he knew Billy Robinson from working AWA, at one point, they had Billy Robinson. So it was always that big English-speaking outsider coming mm-hmm. in to try to take the title away. And after that, it was King Tonga, which became King Aku. Uh, so it, it, it always worked out that we're having that big outside challenge uh, for the local star. And, and, you know, going back to, to Robert or Johnny Rougeau after him, it was always the formula. You know, who can you bring in uh, that that'll be a challenger, and that would be Abdullah the Butcher in the case of Johnny. It'd be the Sheik <laughs> as yes. well. Uh, so it it's uh, it, it it created the, its own story of all of our heroes fighting the fighting the outside world and, and succeeding in that. And and it's Robert was a huge a huge business uh, and and was a big star. Johnny Rougeau was a big star as well. He's the uncle of uh, Raymond and Jacques, the fabulous Rougeau brother that people know a little bit better. Uh, but he was such a huge star. He was uh, he's a member of the Junior Hockey League Hall of Fame. He was a founding uh, members of the uh, Junior Hockey League here in Quebec. He was involved in a lot of businesses, charities. He had a club. You know, those guys were bigger than, than their wrestling character or what they did on, on wrestling. Um, so uh, that that's the, the spirit. And that's what Dino Bravo aspired to be, bigger than just being a wrestling star. But then, you know, everything happened the way it did. And Hulk Hogan and the WWF took over everything. And, right. you know, the story of the business changed forever. But uh, that, that still remains to this day. I mean, I remember going to the forum when they finally did Hulk Hogan and uh, Dino at the forum. I mean, myself remembering what Dino was and how uh, big of a star, uh, you know, it was basically billed as Superman when he was uh, babyface Dino Bravo as the international champion. So having that match at the forum for me was very special. And I remember, you know, reading about when they, they had done the angle where Hogan did a stretcher job in Montreal at the forum for Dino setting up that match and, and that even made the wrestling magazine. So, you know, for me as a fan collecting all those magazines, you know, that my guy was, you know, making such an impact and was this close, you know, very close touching, almost being an equal to Hogan. Uh, that was fantastic. And, and that's what we wanted to bring up. And, you know, Dino is one of the key character that nobody has 
you know, they remember the, the less mobile version of Dino uh, towards his, the end of his uh, WWF run. They, nobody saw the fire baby face, you know, that would go like completely insane, make that big comeback and beat down the eel and, you know, get the win and, and having the forum explode for him. Nobody knew that. So I think it was important to, to set it up so that, you know, people remember that there was more than the blonde Dino Bravo. Right. And, you know, that would happen a lot with the with the kind of territorial or regional stars that would, you know, get swallowed up by the WWF. I mean, it happened to the Rougeos as well, where you become, you know, a, a smaller fish in a bigger pond kind of a thing. Yeah. And very few of those regional stars were able to really continue to be promoted in the same way. Like I'm thinking maybe like a Randy Savage or somebody still still promoted as a very big deal, at least for a long period of time. But um, you mentioned the Sheik, too. And I want to acknowledge that because I discovered, which I didn't know until I was researching this book, that the Sheik held the world title up there in, in Montreal uh, briefly. And but but still, that would be for those that are counting the closest thing to a world title that he ever held in his entire career. Cause they would never let him get close to the NWA title. God forbid they would allow that. I mean, he had plenty of matches for it, but it was never a thought that he would ever hold it, you know? And then same thing with the, I mean, I think he actually had probably had a better chance of holding the WWF title of being a transitional champion um, at the time. In fact, I floated a theory in the book because I was looking at results that I believe I can't prove it, but I believe that he was originally considered to be the transitional champ between Pedro Morales and Bruno getting it back. And I have reasons for that, which I don't want to, you know, I don't want to take over the interview, but it's in the book where I believe that he may have been considered instead of Stan Stasiak, who was the person that became that transitional champ. And I think the breaking of it was that the Sheik did not want to lose it to Bruno San Martino. And so they said, well, we're, we're probably, we're going to go with somebody else, but, but, you know, uh, just the fact that he was a world champion is probably not something that a lot of people know, you know, again, because of Montreal history being cut off sometimes from the rest of uh, wrestling history. Yeah. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a beauty when, you know, when you can dig and find things like that or, you know, Oh, I didn't see it that way. And it's it's uh, always uh, very surprising what's out there. <laughs> you know, you end up picking up something from 1962 and then you read and you're like, oh, okay. Because, you know, I, yesterday, I believe I sent you the, the, the thing I found about the Sheik uh, in, in one of those publications. Yes. But it was about Ann Schmidt, uh, which real name was Guy Rose. He's a Quebec-born, French-speaking guy. And, you know, there was a mention in that book where they actually explained to the French-Canadian people why Anne Schmidt, who speaks French and he's from Quebec, is called Anne Schmidt. And with, you know, so many people had, had told me in the past, how, do, how, do, how did they present him back then that for this to make sense? Well, in the book that I got from 1962, they just said that his parents were of Germanic heritage, and that's why he's called Hans Schmidt. But they they both live in Quebec, and but they're originally from Germany. Well, we also had, although but, I mean, but, you know, 
Ivan Koloff did a very good job of hiding yeah. that, you know, with that unmistakable voice of, of his that you never questioned it. But we also had here, you know, Fritz von Erich, who was supposed to be German as well. And he'd open his mouth and he was clearly a guy from Texas, which is what he was, you know. <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, you know, the simplest of things uh, are, are, are out there. That's that's the fun of it is that you don't know, you know, you're going to get an old magazine or you're going to get into a newspaper and then you're going to get the result on page 25. And it's like you're you're you. Wow. OK, it, it's there. It's right there. The answer right. I, I've been looking for. So that's part of the fun as well. And, and we found also that the more you spoke to people, the more they open up, the more credibility you gain with them. And the more you probe, you know, they, you get their memory going. Almost every time that we speak with Gino, something new comes up that he's never mentioned before, either because he forgot, because since we spoke, he talked about it and then some stuff came back to him. Or, you know, they suddenly, oh, yeah, that's right. And it, because it didn't, they didn't see it at the time, but that they didn't see the importance of it. And now they're just dropping that knowledge to us. I'm like, what? What? <laughs> and you're talking about Gino Brito, right? Yeah, Gino yeah. Brito. So it's like, and, and you know, Ray, Ray Rougeau was the same. I mean, he had uh, film rolls in his attic in the old hockey bag that his uncle gave him. He had he had almost forgotten that it was there. And when they ended up doing a small documentary in French here about the Rougeau family, he found that and we were able to see that. I mean, there's footage of his first wrestling match. Right. Uh, it's incredible what about, they have sometimes, what they're hoarding. They, 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 they literally forgot. I'm just happy that it never threw it away. When I was with WWE and we, we went to when Freddie Blassie passed away and I was part of the group that went over to his house to help catalog his things, we found and I was very low on the totem pole, so I wasn't ever able to really get to the bottom of it. But we found film reels, giant film reels. And I believe that one of them was footage of the L.A. Coliseum show, the match that he had with John Tolas, which I don't. I don't think I've ever seen it anywhere on a video. So that might exist. But again, like God knows how much of this stuff is out there. Like what happened with the, um, the original WWF title belt, the, with the North, with the uh, United States medallion on it that they found. Uh, I think it was, um, who was it? Oh man. Um, Johnny Barron, I guess maybe Johnny Barron yeah. had it in his attic and his widow just found it there. You know, these are the amazing finds that happen. So, you know, it's uh, it's part of uh, the mystery of the old search is that you mm. never know what you're going to end up finding or discovering or, or what little pieces of information is going to come and complete the puzzle or shed new lights on, on a situation or uh, a part of history. And, and uh, we, we were very lucky to be able to speak to so many before they were gone. And, and to, to have the ear uh, of those guys still today, I mean, we can call Gino and we can call Rick at any time and ask questions. And, and, you know, they basically don't give that access just like that. I mean, to be able to have that access uh, whenever is necessary is, is amazing. Uh, and and they, they, 
they've opened up to a level. I mean, Rick was telling me it's in the book, but about, you know, getting stuck on the side of the road with Andre and it's actually Andre who fixed the car, but <laughs> so who knew, but Andre had a, a childhood friends uh, who had the, uh, I have garage and, and I have the French word uh, mechanics. Mechanic, was, yes. Yeah, he has a friend who became a mechanic and the whole family was into repairing cars. So he had basic knowledge. Henrik was like, he had more basic knowledge than me. I have known nothing about cars. But Henry went in there and jiggled a few things and the car went back and we were able to finish and, and get to the show. So those those little moments, for them, it's just part of what their life or working or going. But, you know, they, they shed some light on who Henry was, uh, mm. you know, and beyond Henry the Giant, you know, so that that's always the key also, is it's kind of easy to do a book about uh, the character and yes. tell about matches and how many championships he won and where he went and how long he was in Oregon and, and things of that nature. It's kind of, you can piece that out, but who was he? You know, who was Andre? Who was Andre Ruzimov uh, behind all of that? And it just, I'm guessing it's the same with the Sheik. Who, who was this guy? The Sheik is <laughs> it's all good. We have a pretty good idea. The Sheik was that crazy character and won championship and he was very over and he drew money and he had his territory. But beyond that, who was he? What was going on in his head and with the family and business decision and all of that? That's a fascinating part. Yeah, very hard to uncover that, especially, you know, he never even spoke publicly to anyone, you know, so yeah. I mean, that's just, it was crazy, but I was trying to, yeah, go Mad on. Vachon, we had tons of French interviews. He had done tons and tons of interviews. That's a blessing. So we had to dig, but in the case of the Sheik, there, there is nothing. Nothing, nothing. The only direct quotes and things I had to go on was uh, secondhand, you know, what he had said to other people that they would then tell me about. Um, including in the book Drawing Heat by Jim Friedman, there's actually uh, quotes from him in there that he told the author, you know, they were just hanging out, which is wild to think of. But that's the only time that happened. So it was like I, I felt like um, an archaeologist, you know, and sometimes the stories like you're talking about people like Rick Martell and Gino Brito, the stories that people have are so valuable and sometimes they don't even realize how valuable they are. They'll just drop some random anecdote. Like you said, and you'll go, whoa, 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 wait, what could we, could we go back to that? Right. Cause that happened. Like for my book, I was talking to, I was able to track down flying Fred Curry who still lives close to me in Connecticut. Um, and he knew the Sheik and his family very well, personally family friends. And he, there's not many people still around like that, you know, and I talked to Terry Funk who, first met the Sheik at the time when he started wrestling for his father in Texas. Terry was still in college at West Texas State. So, you know, they'll just randomly drop these remembrances, which to them is nothing. And to us, it's it's these are diamonds and pearls, you know? Yeah, I, I remember, I mean, working with Pat. I mean, he, he kind of had his set of stories that he, he would run through. So there's some stories I must have heard a hundred times. <laughs> <laughs> because he would periodically go back to those stories. Uh, but as we were having drinks and he was singing at a bar, 
he suddenly started telling me about how he reconciled with his dad and giving him a ring. And I'm like, whoa, what's going on, Pastor? Right. You tell me about anything about that. We spoke about your dad. I had a different ending in the book already put in. I was like, I mean, I, I have my, my recorder and I'm, I'm giving myself note because I'm a little tipsy. <laughs> we'll talk about this, we'll talk about that. Pat has said this, Pat has said, because I know tomorrow I have to go back there because I'm like, I cannot believe that he has not spoken to me about that. Uh, you know, bring him, bringing uh, his dad and, and giving him a ring and reconciling and, and what? Yeah. That's you know, so it's, uh, you know, and it just dropped out of nowhere. Uh, and, and that's the only time he ever discussed the issue uh, again. <laughs> so it's like, uh, you never know what will pop up and what will suddenly, you know, come at the surface or what they'll feel suddenly comfortable uh, to talk about. Uh, and the, that's the, the most interesting part to me is that the more we have spoken with any, everyone, the more they gave they give us uh it's 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 not it's like it's not like there's nothing left it's it's like because we, we've gained so much trust uh now you know we can pretty much get anywhere just need to be patient to get there and don't you find too i think that when you're dealing with a situation like that as time goes by they naturally start to trust you more too and get more comfortable around you these are people that are used to being so guarded about their work for sure, but also about their lives. And especially in for, with someone like Pat, you know, for his personal reasons of, of, of having to, you know, uh, um, be in a business and a world where his, his sexual orientation was definitely kind of like a curse at times. So of course he was used to being very secretive, I'm sure. Yeah. Very secretive. And, and it's like, he used to say things like, Oh, you know, they're watching. <laughs> are you talking? about that and uh, you know you know they, they're checking everything they know what i'm doing well you see he was very smart to me because you know i was around him a little when i worked at wwe of course because he'd be backstage at every show he was the only person that was allowed to smoke in these arenas where no one's no smoking was allowed i always thought that was amazing no one asked a question about it it was never questioned no one else could smoke i will say fairly Arnold Skoland at the garden would still have his big giant cigar in his mouth. But other than him, Pat Patterson just chain smoking away at these no smoking arenas. And what was even more impressive to me is, as you probably know, Vince McMahon hates smoking. Vince McMahon's father smoked heavily as well. And I think his pancreatic cancer may have even been tied to that. And even Vince understood this is Pat. No one's going to say no one ever said a word to him about the smoking. But but I was around him a lot. And what I'm saying is what I was impressed by was, you know, he really knew how to especially compared to a lot of wrestlers of his generation who became relics. Sometimes he knew how to stay relevant. He knew how to stay within the good graces of the McMahon family of the family. He knew how to always make himself valuable and beloved more than valuable, you know, and, and he was able to remain a vital part of the industry for decades past the time that most of his peers had faded away. Mm -hmm. he, he was a very special person that that's for sure. Uh, 
I, I mean, strangely enough, what I, the, the best thing I've learned from Pat Patterson is that wrestling is not everything. Mm-hmm. Yes. That, you know, for, for him, he, he was never, uh, you know, he, he, he said that Louis was a big part of that to keep him grounded in the real world. So it, he never became his character. There was always a clear cut between working and real life and doing something else and watching the news and being interested by something else than wrestling. Um, so he was, you know, about, you know, as he grew older, it was about good food, good, good drinks, uh, good fun, karaoke, music, anything that would, you know, bring him back to, to having some fun and getting a pop from a crowd. Uh, so it's uh it was a very changing experience for me uh because you know i ended up loving wrestling but at the same time having a much better understanding that it's not everything uh and and i think that's was the key to his success and his longevity is that he was never consumed by the business uh yeah and but I, i also have to say too that uh i'm i'm impressed because i heard you talk also talk about the book I've heard you talk about the Patterson book in other interviews, like the 605 interview. So I was very impressed that you were able to uh, stay on the project with the Pat Patterson book, because um, as you know, sometimes that's a conflict, like especially with the the reason I say that for, again, people that don't know the situation, the Pat Patterson biography was ECW press, but WWE was also involved and that creates its own situations. And I personally have been, on the other side of that, you know, and seeing what can happen, because I remember, for example, um, people may not know this, but when Shawn Michaels did his first autobiography uh, in the 2000s, he wanted Bill Apter to write that book. And I've told Bill this, so this is no shock to Bill. Bill knows this. He wanted Bill Apter. And the reaction kind of was, well, we don't want a wrestling person, right? And you probably got that. We we want yeah. like a legitimate, whatever that means, person, you know? And I remember I was in the room with the Shawn Michaels thing. I was in the room with Shane McMahon when it came up because Shane was, in char- was involved with all kinds of publications. And me being the opportunist, sorry, Bill, I jumped up, I said... I'll, I'll write it. I mean, like I've written, I've written books. Cause even then I had written one book at least I've written, but you know, I can do it. And I work here and he goes to me, well, what book did you write? And I said, well, I wrote WWE legends. It was a WWE book and you could just see looking at his face. It was just like, yeah, no, that's not what we're looking for. You know, cause they, they wanted, so they wound up getting a writer who was an outside writer, but ironically he used to work for WWE anyway. So it was just a weird, but it's a weird, um, like you said, conflict to get it. To- oh, it took a while to get there because yeah. I'd already f- fired one guy because he couldn't work with him. They had a second guy assigned. And that's when I met Pat and I started to work with him on a project here locally to make a story short. And he saw our first book and, you know, he was like, and we, you know, basic conversation, but I could spoke with him about the, the, the beginning of his career and I didn't have to explain he didn't have to explain to me who those guys were, you know, Cyclone Sanson and and all those guys that Pat started his career with. I, I knew who those guys were. I didn't have to get any explanation on how the territory system worked or anything. And he loved that because he could get to his story. And, you know, so, and they they kind of had the feeling that Pat wanted someone to, to have drinks with. <laughs> 
<laughs> to have a, a buddy. Uh, so, I mean, when they flew me in for the interview, I mean, that was a big thing about, you know, how much wrestling is it going to be? Is it going to be a wrestling book? You know, well, it's Pat's story, you know, so it's kind of hard not to get through the He's wrestling. Wrestler, right. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that basically I told them the truth, which is, well, that's all easy to get to how many championships he won and where he went. And But what happened during those years? Who was he? What was the, his life like with Louis and all of that? So I don't know if I did a good impression with Kevin Dunn, to be frank. Uh, but that was pretty impressive to be flown into Connecticut to have an interview with Kevin Dunn. But uh, it took, you know, they were supposed to make a decision like in the, the coming week. And it took seven, eight months before they finally made a decision. Right. And it's Pat said, OK, what's going on? Has anyone contacted you? said no they haven't contacted me they said it was going to take a week and that they were meeting a few more people and that uh they should have someone on on the case he said okay and then two days later he called me to say okay you get the job and they're going to call you tomorrow (laughs) but what a weird business though right when you think about it i mean could you imagine if you're writing a biography of a hockey player and somebody says to you well as long as there's not too much hockey in that book you know try not to write too much about hockey and maybe going, you know too much about hockey to wrote that book right and you're thinking well if it wasn't for hockey or in pat's case if it wasn't for the wrestling this person wouldn't be famous i mean there wouldn't yeah. be cause to write a book about him i wouldn't be able to write a book about so why, why ignore that but i'm curious why um it just seems weird to me that you would have to interview with Kevin Dunn though, because he's TV, right? What does he have to do with a with a book? I don't, he was close to Pat, um, okay. and for whatever reason, at that point in time, he was the guy. And hmm. I don't know if they wanted to see if why Pat lo- loved me so much. Uh, I have no idea, uh, to be frank. And he was very nice. It was amazing. I left him a copy of the Mad Dog Midgets and Screwjob books of the French version as well, because there was a pic- pictures of Andrew in there that he had never seen before. And he was happy to see those. Uh, and, and he was very nice, very happy, um, you know, but, you know, I, you know, it's very weird from the real world to be told, you know, we're going to make a decision within a week mm. and then you, you don't hear anything for seven months. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's not weird when you know that world, right? Yeah. Um, well, titan's time for a reason titan time uh, right but, uh it it's it's really um how, how, how can you say that uh it's 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 amazing you know to 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 be flown to connecticut and have the the, the driver to bring you to the uh, studio and waiting in the the, the waiting area and it's the posters everywhere, the memorabilia. So it's like, wow, okay, it's it's impressive. And but it, it was always about Pat being comfortable with the person he was working with, and he got a lot of leeway on that. But I do believe that you know he was basically told, okay, well, we're going to take your guy, but you're going to have to deliver a book, you know, because it already fired two guys. So <laughs> obviously, <laughs> no pressure. You know, kind of had the pressure of getting it done, but. We got it done and, uh, you know, he loved the book and he, he was very liberated at the end of the whole process. And we we came up with that idea together about uh, each chapter as a, a verse from my way. Mm, great. And 
you learn that you actually have to license that to do that in a book. Oh, right. Yeah, sure. If you've got a if you've got that much of a song lyric, like you're allowed to use a line or two. Yeah, but, but actually each chapter. Had, right. Had from my way. I had so, a song. There's a song in the Sheik book because uh, the Sheik was originally called the Sheik of Araby. And the name was based on a song. And I had the entire lyric of the song. Now, I'm very lucky because that song is over 100 years old. So so it's public domain. So they didn't have to pay anything for it, but not my but way. <laughs> that that came up pretty quickly that this was going to be an issue and we may mm. not have any budget for that. So I'm, I'm like, OK, well, I'll bring it up to Pat and let, let him know that we're probably going to have to drop that. And Pat is like, well, you know, they can ask Vince about it. And if Vince say no, it's no. But, you know, let's ask Vince. Okay. So I go back to my my contact, uh, which for whatever reason, the name is uh, miss, escaping me at the moment. And then I explained to the Pat is okay with whatever is the decision, but he would like to be to, for the issue to bring up to Vince. And I leave it at that, you know. That. <laughs> right. And well, there you go. Me, because he probably knew what Vince was going to say, too. You yeah. Know? By the time we got the manuscript, you know, the, my way was in there and we had the license part in the, in the credits. And and I never heard anything else about budget or or anything like that. So clearly, you know, it just once the decision was brought up that I it, it was just a yes, you know. So it's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool book. You know, to have, you know, it has a, a quote from Dwayne Johnson on the cover and forward by Vince McMahon and my name and all of that with Pat. So, you know, it's a right now a I, yeah, very well, amazing project to be a part of. I was going to ask you, too, because obviously you told the, the story about Vince approving the song and Vince writing the, the forward. Um, but did you aside from that, did you ever get any uh direct feedback from Vince or any kind of word of to what he thought of it? Cause obviously, you know, he and Pat were very, very close. So did you ever hear anything about, about from him at all? Not, not from, from Vince uh, directly. Uh, I know Pat brought me in one day to, to have lunch and he wanted me to help him put something together in the copy that he wanted to give to Vince uh, personal forward. So I helped Pat putting that together and, uh, putting it in, in 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 the copy of the book, and I never heard anything afterwards. Um, however, you know, Mick Foley, you know, gave me the best compliment. Is that you know, I was reading the book, and it was like Pat was speaking in my head. People who knew Pat had the feeling that Pat was actually in their head speaking, uh, which was the feeling I was going for. You know, Pat is was. Uh, you know, the guy you meet at the corner of the bar and he's like buying you a beer and he's telling you tell tall stories and, you know, amazing stories because they're, most of them are completely true. <laughs> and uh, sharing about his life and adventures around the world. So that's the feeling we were going for, that you were meeting Pat at the bar and he was telling you about his life. And uh, so to get people like that who knew Pat and it was like, and even Stone Cold, when he interviewed Pat in his podcast, was saying, you know, it was just like speaking with you. You were going ahead of yourself and going back. And, and, and one of the things Pat loved when we were working together is Pat had a tendency to go from French to English. Mm. So I could keep up. <laughs> <laughs> right right so that that 
so I try to keep that feeling in the book as well. So it's, uh, you know, uh, it's been, Pat has been gone a year and it's, uh, it's been different. Uh, but I remember Pat, you know, being a fan and aiding him. Like he was like the biggest <laughs> asshole possible as a heel. He was a Quebecer called Pat Patterson telling us we're just a bunch of hot dog eating stupid people basically when he yes. came the u.s to work montreal uh, when i started to be a fan he was the most irritating hill that i have ever known uh but like most characters sometimes he's the he was the total opposite uh, as a uh, as a person working with him and i got so much appreciation for him as a person learning the thing about wrestling not being everything but also you know speaking psychology sometimes with him about wrestling and you know how bad raw was the night before that he went to bed at 10 p.m and uh <laughs> things of that nature um and you know that he he also respected my opinion enough sometimes you know you're watching the pay-per-view or the other uh, 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 does it call it oh a uh, premium live event <laughs> have events and uh pat patterson is texting you from gorilla to ask you uh, what you're thinking of what's going on and is it good and how does it come off on tv so that that was fun um so it's uh you know i never believed in a hundred years that something like that could happen you know i was telling my, my brother can you imagine you know we were going at the forum to boo him and you know I I was spending a week with him in Florida. You know, the last time I was at his home in Florida, we got drunk at the neighbors for for, for dinner, and I got so sick. You know, you know that the last thing I did at Pat Patterson's house is clean up the bathroom. Uh, <laughs> but it's an amazing story, you know, uh, because you know Pat was like that. You know, his neighbors. You know, not somebody famous, not somebody, he, oh, just somebody that he had fun with. That he used to play golf with the father. And now we were just having dinner with the neighbors. And that's, again, something that, you know, Pat was really a simple life, but the pleasure of simple, you know, all the pleasures were there. And uh, so he's a b- dearly missed. You know, I'm, I'm glad to hear that because in my own much more limited interactions with him, he did, although I did get to see him do my way on karaoke, but he he did always seem like a very well-rounded person compared to a lot of other wrestlers, like like somebody who who did enjoy life more and had a little bit more perspective and, and wisdom, you know, and it wasn't just some old carny or something, you know, and I'm glad to hear that that is true, that that's reinforced by your experience also. <laughs> but, um, and you know, it's funny, I'm thinking now, because <laughs> now that I've, you know, we, we've got about an hour now, so I, I like to keep these things in that time frame. But I also have so many things I wanted to ask about Andre, too. But I'll have to have you back because um, me being an English literature major as well. The fact that, or literature major in general, the, the, his connection with Samuel Beckett is mind blowing to me uh, when I discovered that. But, uh, uh, you know, so, I mean, I have a lot of things that I want to talk about with Andre about, but I mean, we, we could definitely do it. Um, if, if you I'd come be back. And, and do a special on Andre. 
Um, and, and, you know, that, that was part of the fun with Andre was really, okay, what is the story? What is the truth? <laughs> and what is the mix of the two? And, and I truly believe that Andre lives and will live some form or fashion somehow as a you know bigger than life character but you know like you know there's dracula story i think they're still gonna make some sort of stories about andre in the future he's gonna be a character in in that sense is that the, he goes beyond uh his life is that he will truly exist for all time in some form way of fashion um because of the way he was presented and and, and part of it is how much fiction and reality became so blur that uh, it was quite a challenge, but at the same time, very re rewarding to uh, dig into. Yeah. And, and also mythical, uh, I, in the sense of who I was writing about too, the Sheik, where it's like somebody who, I mean, not anywhere near the same level of mainstream cultural transcendence the way Andre had, but this like person who became mythical, you know, it's yeah. fascinating, fascinating. Yeah. I, I, we will have to talk about that at length, absolutely. Um, but for, but I mean, this has been great. I this has really, really been everything I hoped it would be. So thanks for thanks for coming on. Thank you for the invite. Like I said, I mean, I love speaking wrestling. You you actually have to stop me, so it's a good thing. <laughs> um, and you know, there's many books. You know, that we barely touch on Mad Dogs, also right. another story uh like like we said the 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 andre book is the first for the first time we have a second printing on a soft cover uh it's out there right now so it's the reception for that book has been amazing so we always love to to speak about that and uh you know uh whenever you're ready i'm ready i'm ready and and i would say that uh we, we could have pat as well pat laprade but I have uh, I do not have a premium Zoom subscription, and so I'm not allowed to have more than two people on the Zoom. But maybe one day when I'm not such a cheapskate, um, I'll invest in that and we could actually have a three way conversation. That would be fun, too. Whenever you're ready. There you have it, folks. Bertrand Hebert. And I hope you enjoyed our discussion about an area of territorial wrestling that I don't think gets as much attention as it deserves, meaning being uh, Montreal wrestling and, and really the French Canadian wrestling tradition. That was a lot of fun. And uh, of course, Bertrand and Pat Laprade's book, The Eighth Wonder of the World, The True Story of Andre the Giant. It recently came out in paperback. There was a hardcover edition, and the paperback edition is out. So if you if you haven't read it and you didn't get it before, this is a great opportunity um, to go out and get it. And as for my book, well, you know what? I'm going to talk about the book. But before I get to that, I want to talk about upcoming guests because uh, next week I am going to another part of North America, mainly the Indianapolis region, because I'm going to be talking to Dave Dynasty, the podcaster and historian and all around interesting guy. And we're going to be talking about the WWA, Dick the Bruiser and, you know, the whole old school Indianapolis wrestling scene. So that'll be a fun one. Of course, coming up in the weeks to come, I've mentioned it before. I've got Dave Marquez, the promoter, producer, announcer, um, and all around interesting guy as well. Going to have him. And of course, I'm saving it for the week of the book. 
release. And I'm talking about my conversation with Rob Van Dam, who wrote the foreword for Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real life story of wrestling's original Sheik. And of course, as I said at the top of the show, and I'll get to it again now, the book is going to be out in about two weeks time. You can pre-order it now on Amazon or wherever you pre-order books. And the official publication date is April 12th. I've been hearing from some people that they've gotten emails saying the book that they pre-ordered will actually be delivered on that day. I can't guarantee it, but it's probably a good idea to get your pre-order in if you are interested in buying the book. Uh, for other things that I write, of course, there's Pro Wrestling Illustrated, There's uh, which the May issue is currently on sale now. And you can get it at getpwi.com. There's also Inside the Ropes magazine, their newest issue with Stone Cold Steve Austin. I believe it's issue 19 just recently went on sale. You can go to InsideTheRopesMagazine.com to get that. Of course, I'm the co-host of the PWI podcast because, of course, I'm not busy enough these days. I've got to keep adding more stuff. But the PWI podcast with Al Castle and myself, it's always a fun time. You can search that one out. And as for this podcast or that one, I'm not sure where you're finding it. Uh, maybe it's on our website, which is suawpod.com for Shut Up and Wrestle. You can also, of course, find it on Spotify. You can find it at Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, uh, Podbean, wherever you get your podcasts. You can continue to listen to Shut Up and Wrestle, and I hope you do. And if you're looking for me, of course, I can be found on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. I'm on Facebook. If you're looking for wrestling content, I post it on my Facebook group page, which is uh, Pro Wrestling FAQ. So if you search for Pro Wrestling FAQ on Facebook, you will find that page. And on all my social media platforms, you can find links to my author website, which has a lot of updates on my doings. So as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in. And in the words of our dear departed friend, Scott Hall... Hard work pays off, dreams come true, bad times don't last, bad guys do. So long, wrestling fans. 